Hello, welcome to the Hay Festival podcast, where we bring you conversations with the world's greatest writers and thinkers. Today, we're diving into the world of artificial intelligence as Peter Scott Morgan discusses becoming the first human cyborg with technophile Stephen Fry to a Hay Festival audience in 2021. It's definitely worth checking out the full-length video version of this event on our Hay Player and catching the glorious moment that Scott Morgan evolves into his latest avatar, Peter 2.0. Hay Player is only £15 for a year subscription and there are thousands of Hay Festival events to watch there. But for now, enjoy Peter's determination to explore new technologies, his quest for prolonging life, his optimism and sense of humour. Welcome, welcome everybody to this Hay Session, a Hay Session that I have been excited about for a very long time. In my long association with the Hay Festival, I have met presidents and Nobel Prize winners and literary heroes and sporting heroes and all kinds of people, but I promise you, I am not lying when I say that this is the most exciting session I have ever been involved with. Um, I want to begin by re reminding those who have followed me at Hay that I once, about six or seven years ago, gave uh, a lecture, a talk on artificial intelligence, which is a subject that has interested me for a long time. I have also been extremely interested in in the idea of, of how humans might prolong their lives, not because I want to prolong mine, but just out of out of interest. Um, the two ways you might do it, dumping your consciousness onto a machine or um, becoming more bionic, if you like. Um, those things have interested me. I've also been interested in stories of love and friendship and human imagination and ingenuity. Well, I won't go on and on because all these things come together in this session. Peter was diagnosed with motor neuron disease which, as you probably know, is a pretty unstoppable progressive atrophying of muscles uh, that kind of go all the way up the body, up to the eyes, really. Um, but uh, Peter was not going to be beaten by that. He's a very brilliant man who works in AI himself. And, well, let me, let me start by asking some questions, which, of course, have come to him with notice because Peter uses a voice synthesizer and so needs to be able to get the answers in. Stephen, it's absolutely wonderful to be talking with you. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's going to be fun. I think it is. It's going to be fun and fascinating. First things first, you have described yourself as a transitioning cyborg. How first would you define cyborg? Cyborg is simply a fancy word for part human, part machine. In my case, what's never been done before is that the most important machine parts of me will be AI, not mechanics. And that all potentially gets a bit weird. Not least because I'm planning to use more and more AI to work with me on everything. Everything from speaking to controlling things to moving about. The point is, my brain is racing away, frantically wanting to communicate with the outside world, to write emails, to work the TV remote, to chip into conversations. But I'm only able to move my eyes. It's like being in my own private universe, only able to tap out Morse code to the rest of you. I need AI to second guess what I'm wanting to communicate, but from the start, I didn't want to be coy about what I was doing the inherent unusualness of it all. 
I decided to be out and proud about my transitioning status and also be brazen about the fact I would increasingly diverge from the norm. So I commandeered the word cyborg. Fantastic. Now, I think it's fair to say we could um, describe your journey to becoming the world's first ever cyborg, real cyborg outside science fiction, begins with, um, how can I put it, uh, a wonky foot. Francis and I were in the Arctic chasing the northern lights. I stepped out of a lovely hot bath and did what I've done all my life. I wiggled my foot to shake off the drips. It didn't wiggle, and at best, it was a slow waggle. So my very first symptom was, as you so accurately categorized, a wonky foot. But it then took a year to get a diagnosis. There's no test for MND, so you have to resort to eliminating everything it isn't. In my case, this involved giving vast amounts of blood, being deafened by hours of MRI scans, interminable electric shocks, and my personal favorite, a lumbar puncture. It took forever. I was in a wheelchair long before we knew why I was in a wheelchair. And just for sort of background, before this very alarming episode in the bathroom, life, I guess, was pretty typical for you. Um, perhaps you can say what normal life for Peter 1.0, for original Peter, was. To answer that, let me start by giving a bit of background. In my 20s, I was lucky enough to invent a way to decode strands of what, in effect, is the hidden operating system that civilization runs on. Ah, unwritten rules if you like. But as I got more and more glimpses into how humanity ticks, how it evolves, I realized that to get the full picture, I'd have to fill in some missing pieces that no one was likely to fund me to research. Very conveniently, this corresponded with Francis and me having the epiphany that although we could probably never have too much money, we could have enough whereas we would never have enough time together. So while we were still fit and adventurous, I gave up paid work and we began exploring the world. And I filled in the missing unwritten rules of being human for almost exactly nine years. Then I got a wonky foot. Right. So this diagnosis of motor neuron disease, um, Lou Gehrig's disease, they call it in America, and Charcot disease in the, on the continent, I think. Surely not just a terrible shock to you and your husband, uh, to Francis, but um, it would mean an end to so much that had brought you joy in life. Seriously, if you're going to have a terminal disease, MND's the one to go for. There's no nausea, no pain, and usually your brain stays as sharp as ever. Oh. And the terminal bit turns out to be negotiable. With that said, does what's dubbed the world's cruelest disease nevertheless inevitably suck the joy out of life? Look, I found the trick to enjoying total paralysis is simply to imagine you're in a luxury spa hotel and the maitre d' insisted you put your feet up and you don't move a muscle. It's brilliant. The life of a sedentary pharaoh. I've discovered my inner slob. And no one complains, 
So the real answer to your question is that my diagnosis with MND has confirmed to me that joy in life, contentment, happiness, fun, are far less a result of circumstances than many assume. They are an act of will. Wow. Um, you found the rules that govern society. Are there any unwritten rules of being human that have become clearer to you as you've become a cyborg? Has that made a difference? Lots. As examples, here are my top four unwritten rules that I'd recommend for anyone who's unexpectedly hit by a crisis. First, remember who's boss. Nothing and nobody can stress you. You can only do that yourself. Second, accept bad luck. It's not fair, only applies to human behavior. Never situations. Move on. Third, don't panic. Think. All animals panic. But humans alone can think their way to calmness. And fourth, and most important, never give up. Life offers hope. Hope breeds energy. Energy creates resolve. And resolve rewrites the future. That's brilliant. That sounds like the best bits of Stoicism and Nietzsche. All the bad bits taken out. Uh, you, you certainly don't give up and you haven't given up. And I bet you never will. Didn't you pretty soon start about this process of replumbing yourself? Oh, yes. This was driven by my desire to answer the only remaining mysteries in Star Wars. How does Darth Vader eat, drink and go to the bathroom? You see, with MND, the good news is that you'll always be able to go to the loo. The bad news is you'll never be able to get to the loo or eat or drink. My solution was to completely replumb my gut and add four new connections. Food in, liquid in, waste number one, waste number two. But it had never been done before. So I booked to see a top surgeon at my local NHS hospital here in Torquay and explained my ideas. After a while, he shook his head and said, Of course we should be offering this on the NHS. A few months later, a trio of him and two other surgeons performed the first ever such operation in the world. Now, I never have to get up at night. I can eat while I'm asleep. And for the first time in my life, I drink over two liters of water a day. For me, it's been a definite upgrade. In which case, I suppose, back to your diagnosis. The initial weeks um, when you were coming to terms with it all, how quickly did you make the decision to start doing something, something like this Darth Vader solution? My first thoughts after diagnosis were actually how I could break the news to Francis without putting him off our planned trip to an exhibition on ancient Egypt. But immediately after that, I found myself thinking, die as a man or live as a cyborg. To me, it was a no-brainer. This was to be a terminal disease like no one had seen before. I was going to rise like a phoenix. I passionately believe that it's the birthright of every human being to be able to change the universe, even when we've been brought to our knees. The point is, each of us can find ourselves crushed 
simply staying alive. But each of us can also choose to rise like a phoenix and thrive. Whatever we are, whatever our background, whatever our circumstances, whatever our ambitions, of course it's scary. But when our response to our clash of hope and fear is nevertheless to deliberately break the rules, rebel against fate, forge our own destiny, then sometimes, impossibly, we get to leave our fingerprints on everyone's future, and we change everything. And talking about changing everything, at one point you write about the fork in the road which we now find ourselves at in terms of how humanity, not just you, the one human, but humanity itself evolves alongside AI. And, and I understand that for you, as a living embodiment of human-centric, anthropocentric AI, this is something that you actually feel very passionately about. Way back in the early 80s, I was preparing my dissertation for what turned out to be the first robotics PhD in the UK. Based on this and against the advice of both my professor and my publisher, I ended my first robotics textbook with these words. If the path of enhanced human is followed, then it will be possible for mankind and robots to remain on the same evolutionary branch, rather than humanity watch the robots split away. In this way, mankind will one day be able to replace its all too vulnerable bodies with more permanent mechanisms and use the supercomputers as intelligence amplifiers. That was 1984. Ever since, I've advocated making AI our partner rather than our rival. Think of AI on its own as a brilliant jazz pianist, but without anyone to jam with. On the one hand, AI can give an impressive solo performance, wow the audience, yet even so, it's nowhere near its full potential. On the other hand, if the pianist is seamlessly merged with a talented vocalist who has noticeably different skills, the combined virtuoso performance can seem close to magic. I believe that the most attractive future for humanity is one where people and AI work together, human-centric AI. In other words, AI in harmony with people, neither the AI nor the individual giving a solo performance. A mutually dependent partnership, not a rivalry. Synergy, not a zero-sum game. A jazz combo. And, and, and why do you think that it's at this point in history that our choices have become so important? We will never be able to backtrack from the route we choose in this decade. Our research momentum will be too high just like the reciprocating internal combustion engine dominated all the alternatives throughout the 20th century. And if we don't take the human-centric path, then not only will we miss out on its huge benefits, but I anticipate there'll be a crippling backlash against what's typically perceived as the uncontrolled rise of raw AI. But it'll be too late. AI subjugating humanity is nothing like as straightforward as Hollywood blockbusters suggest. But I know of no practical way of embedding protections, such as Asimov's three laws of robotics. No way of ensuring that researchers even try to embed them. 
So it seems inevitable, if we take the raw AI route, that before 2050 we have spawned numerous species of parallel sentient intelligences that are far more diverse than humanity, and far faster than we expect. Some of those will dominate the others, and us. And soon they will leap so far ahead as to treat us, if we're lucky, as pets, more likely as pests. Or we can take the human-centric route, which may well be the only path that doesn't lead to a dead end. This is very interesting because it, it so chimes with what I was thinking about when I when I was writing about the, the Greek myths when Prometheus and Zeus said so Zeus um, Zeus wanted to stop humans getting divine fire. In other words, a consciousness and intelligence, a self-awareness of their own. And Prometheus, our champion, said, no, we should have it. And Zeus felt that Zeus was like the humans are now and felt that the humans were like robots, that he had created these humans and that if they had fire, they would take over from the gods and soon the gods would be killed and they would end, which happened in a sense because we don't believe in the Greek gods anymore and now we have the Promethean fire. The stakes were very great for Prometheus therefore because he loved humanity. So what are our stakes if we take the wrong turning? Let me start by quoting back to you a sentence from your magnificent book Mythos. It's the bit about mankind getting the gift of fire. When I first read it I immediately thought AI is the modern version of fire. You said, they learned from Prometheus that fire was not their enemy, but a powerful friend which, once tamed, had 10,000 uses. My point is, giving AI human center is how we tame our fire. Prometheus, of course, is typically portrayed as the titan personifying forethought. We need exactly that kind of civilizing forethought. Now, more than in any time since civilization got going 5,000 years ago. The stakes have never been higher. One future is the well-documented scenarios leading to global chaos, but the other leads to global renaissance. Oh, I like the sound of that. Um, t tell me more about that. The future that opens up around 2050, if only we don't screw up along the way, is not just about the Earth and the future of Earth, it's about the Moon, Mars, and eventually Proxima B. Then other systems on the outer edge of our spiral arm of the Milky Way galaxy. And from there, with ever more stunning technology, the universe. And it's about myriad cyber worlds populated by AI, at least as intelligent and self-aware as we are. And who knows what else? But it's mind-bogglingly huge. Most people don't vaguely appreciate what is set to unfold in their lifetimes, if only we hold on course. Or what radically life-changing futures depend on that. Even most scientists only appreciate the jaw-dropping developments that will emerge in their own fields, without thinking through the implications of all their colleagues, equally awesome developments in other disciplines, or coming online at much the same time, around 2050. But whether it's generally recognized or not, those futures are what's at stake if we take the wrong turning. And that is the Olympian prize awaiting us if we get it right. Yeah, sure. 
And one of the most intriguing ideas raised uh, by this book is the question of whether one might, thanks to becoming ever increasingly enmeshed uh, with AI, live forever. Of course. Your question goes to the very core of the riddle I pose in the final chapters of Peter 2.0. What happens when a cyborg dies? Specifically, what happens when a major part of a cyborg is advanced AI? Returning to my jazz metaphor, what I'm suggesting at the end of the book is that, long after the jazz combo has been forced to disband because one of the pair has died, it may still be nice to hear the brilliant pianist play solo again. Especially if the pianist has been profoundly transformed by the experience of playing as half of a duo and has learned to sing indistinguishably from how the vocalist used to. So if your consciousness has intertwined, as it were, so profoundly with the technologies surrounding it, biological death need not ultimately mean death at all. Okay, let me come clean. Of course I know that it's massively unlikely that I'll still be around in even just 50 years, let alone a few centuries or longer. But I cannot stress enough how mind-shatteringly different it is for a scientist like me to say massively unlikely instead of impossible. I think it very likely that within a few decades, someone somewhere will use something very similar to the approach I propose in Peter 2.0 to transform into someone, in my mind at least, still utterly human, but different and of undefined lifespan. That is what I've tried to make readers aware of in the more fanciful bits of the book. Most people alive today will usher in a new epoch of humanity. And yes, of course, the scientist in me wants to be at the beating heart of the action. And the romantic in me longs to be there with the man I've loved all my adult life. But honestly, who'd have guessed that cheating death was a full-time job? And of course, if, if mortality is no longer an absolute, a great deal is thrown up in the air, not least religion. I mean, uh, do we any longer need to hypothesize the existence of a God who offers us eternal life in reward for what he decides is good behavior if we've bypassed God altogether? This is an absolutely fascinating rabbit hole to go down. There are so many labyrinthine branches to explore. Let me show you the entrance to a few. First, there's the intriguing choices that those believing in an afterlife will have to make. Even if you're totally convinced some form of heaven exists, when should you go there? Maybe for some ineffable reason your God wants you to struggle on a bit longer. Maybe it's a sin to give up too early. What's more, as soon as you can live in a multiverse of virtual reality, it becomes trivial to only ever interact with like-minded individuals. After all, most people already do that on social media. You can always be in your prime. Your surroundings can be whatever feels to you like paradise. In the extreme, your version can be unique to you, a solipsistic perfection, which is remarkably like most descriptions of the afterlife. Exactly. Absolutely. 
if I'm really wicked, I'd throw in the brain twister that even if you're utterly secure in your faith, how do you know that you're not already an AI being tested by your God in one virtual reality before being switched to another? In which case, this is the wicked bit. What exactly is the difference between your potential afterlife and everyone else's potential life? Of course, if you're not so sure about the literal existence of an afterlife, but until now have been hedging your bets, this is suddenly crunch time. How sure are you? Choosing to die becomes the gamble. If you're an ambivalent agnostic, having faith in science switches to the safer bet. But this is the best bit. When you take those unwritten rules and roll the scenario forward in time, it stabilizes in a gloriously harmonious state. Or those who fervently believe in a god and an afterlife, including one assumes any religious fanatics, will choose to meet their maker as soon as their conscience allows. Or the rest of us will stick with our evidence-based option. Both ends of the spectrum will be convinced they've made the right choice, but each will be firmly separated from the other, as will all intolerant extremists from different religions. Which sounds like heaven on earth to me. <laughs> it is. It's an upgrade of Pascal's wager, which I rather like. But there are other things at stake, of course. Without mortality, would we still treasure love and our experiences and our vertical moments in the same way? I honestly think that the premise that somehow our lives are made more meaningful because they're fleeting is a delusional myth invented to try to make our imminent death more palatable. For instance, we live on average around four times longer than our Stone Age ancestors, but I suspect we treasure our love far more than they had time for before bitter grief took over. We're far richer for the tapestry of memories we build up and our experiences teach us we never stop learning from them even at 80, 90, 100. Theirs, in contrast, got culled. So yes, how we treasure love, memories and experiences will change. But they have the chance to be better, more solid, more layered, more balanced. And we can rediscover the ambition and patience of our medieval forebears who planned cathedrals that took centuries to build. Except, for us, it will be the time to travel to the stars and build new worlds and add some meaning to a cold, unthinking universe. For us, as a species, it will be liberating. I, I suppose a more um, immediate question than this, and it might have occurred to, to some of the audience um, uh, tuning in at the moment, and is the reminiscence towards uh, of the ancient paradox of Theseus's ship um, as AI gradually takes on more and more responsibility for one's behaviours and one's interactions. At what point do you cease to be the you? that I'm talking to now, the one which loves and has been loved by Francis for some 40 years. How do I know that I'm talking to the real you? I have to be honest. Even as a teenager, I could never see Theseus's ship as a metaphysical paradox at all. To my mind, the ship in Athens Harbour is obviously a replica. It's all to do with the unwritten rules of being human. 
demonstrably every plank was replaced long before it completely rotted. Otherwise the ship would have sunk. No skilled artisan would have burned such a symbolic artifact as a genuine part of Theseus's ship. They'd have taken it home and protected it as a revered family heirloom. And if all those liberated pieces were ever gathered together as a museum exhibit, then that, atom for atom, would be the remnants of the ship on which Theseus stood, having slayed the Minotaur. Hmm. Though, of course, part of the paradox is that they're slowly replaced each plank, not all in one go, which would uh, argue that it is a completely different, it is a replica. But was there a moment when the fourth plank, the twelfth, the 400th plank was removed? Anyway, it's <laughs> to be continued. But, but what are the implications for us, uh, for us humans about this, do you say? Let's start with you. In your book, Heroes, at one point you posed the question, am I the same person I was 50 years ago? Every molecule and cell of my body has been replaced many times over. I'd suggest you've answered your own question. No. Like all of us, you're not the same person. And thank goodness for that. We are learning organisms, and learning means change. Initially to things like knowledge, likes, dislikes, competencies, but eventually to self-esteem, fundamental beliefs, even character. The implication is that, to stay in love for 42 years, as Francis and I have been lucky enough to do, needs both parties to keep falling in love with each other. Looking back, since 1979, we've both changed out of all recognition inside and out. But our love has only grown deeper. My current transformation is a lot faster, more noticeable, but not more fundamental. So you're saying that in the future, Francis and I won't be talking with the same Peter 2.0 as we are now. It'll be Peter 2.1, then 2.2, and so on. But it doesn't matter because we will be different too. Precisely. I want to keep changing. For example, you may have noticed at the moment my avatar can't smile. It turns out getting smiles right is really hard, especially mine. But a Peter 2.0 that never even grins just isn't me. I don't want that. When you first see my avatar smile, you will know that is the real me. And don't be thrown if I start acting out of character. It's just me exploring my emerging freedom to be whatever persona or personas I choose. It frankly feels like being a teenager again. I want to experiment, and that's very me. So even if I break into a chorus of Daisy, Daisy, give me your answer, do. Then that's the real me. Si je peux brusquement parler français comme je l'ai toujours voulu, then that's also the real me. And if one day I start sounding like a classic American newscaster, it's because I can. And it seemed like an interesting idea to try. And it's still the real me. As it will be if I honor my Celtic roots north of the border. Almost anything is possible. <laughs> Seriously, anything? I might try a full Doctor Who. 
and explore the wonderfully subversive cognitive dissonance I can set up by merely altering my voice. I may even adopt the philosophy propounded by our mutual hero Oscar Wilde. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery that mediocrity can pay to greatness. But even then, dear Stephen, you will all the time be abundantly aware that whatever voice I use is still the real me. And if in a decade or two, my entwined AI system gets clever enough to start compensating for any slowness on my part, or forgetfulness, or even early stage dementia, then that will be the real me too. Oh, that was just amazing. Amazing, Peter. <laughs> so if we, if we envisage a, a positive future enveloped with a human-centric form of AI, as you've described, the, the jazz combo, can, can you make any predictions as to how our daily lives might play out, how they, how, how they might look? First, especially for those, say, with disabilities or at extreme old age. Ten years before I got around to including the idea in my first textbook, I actually wrote an essay at school saying I thought everybody would end up linked to AI and therefore be part machine. Even then, I sort of took it for granted as I do now. But I had absolutely no intention of being the human guinea pig that had to suffer all the bug-ridden software and system crashes. It's literally become the experiment of my life. And yes, as a scientist and as a prototype, I'm very optimistic about the power of AI and robotics to transform our expectations of what it means to be old, even in terms of becoming forgetful or getting dementia. We're at the early dawn of escaping the fear of becoming infirm, of being powerless, of feeling trapped in an inadequate body. Some people are pessimistic about AI and humanity, but I have to say, from my perspective, from everything I know, I feel incredibly excited about our future. Our adolescent species is about to come of age, grow up, become less fearful, feel more free than we have ever felt. Thank you for listening to the Hay Festival podcast. Next Friday, we hear from human rights icon Malala Yousafzai talking to Lydia Cacho about her work in activism. This episode will start with an excerpt from an event with Malala's father, Zayadine Yousafzai. As ever, please support us by giving this podcast a rating or sharing it with your friends. This podcast was presented by Poppy Evans. See you next time. <laughs>